What a great blessing of God's grace to allow us to be together this morning. We're grateful for visitors with us. What an encouragement you are. We thank you for making your way to be with us today. We pray that uh, this will be a good investment of your time. Our intention is to edify one another by sharing in God's Word, by participating in worship to Him. He is the focus. We want to help you to focus on Him and encourage you to do that, especially if you'll open your Bibles and follow along. We'll spend most of our time in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first 10 or so verses there, if you want to go ahead and just keep that open. Um, but I do thank you so much for being here as an encouragement to me, and I know to these brethren here as well. God has blessed us by the riches of His grace. What a, what a great lead-in as we think about uh, the Lord uh, being willing to prepare before our sin, to pay the price for it, and then to follow through and give us opportunity also to share in His grace by reaching out to others with the physical means that He's given into our hand question comes up sometimes about how immense God's grace is. There's no question about the immensity of it. But does His grace exempt us from obedience? There is a current thought in Christian, Christendom, I'll say, not in Christianity, biblically speaking, that there's really not much we can do to fall from His grace, that His grace is immense and sufficient to reach us all. I agree in theory with that statement. But you hear some things like this when people are trying to bring others to Christ. A preacher may say, just raise your hand and accept Jesus into your heart. By grace, you will be accepted into the fold of Christ. Or some may say, well, just, just send a sinner's prayer. If you tell God that you're sorry, he'll forgive you. And by his grace, you'll be saved by praying through this sinner's prayer. And there are many who will say, well, you don't need to do anything. As we've been looking at, Jesus already did it all. What could you possibly do to save yourself? Jesus did it all. And in theory, there's a part of all of these things that is somewhat correct. But this is not the end of the story of God's grace and our response to it. The question is, does God's grace exempt us from obedience? Those are very comforting things to say. Raise your hand and accept Jesus into your heart. That's an easy thing to do. And boy, who doesn't want Jesus in their heart? Or to pray some way asking for forgiveness and just know that you've been forgiven and saved. What a blessing and sim simple blessing that is. And God's grace is sufficient for that. But does it mean we don't have to do anything? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that grace just extends to everybody and there's no need for any kind of a response? Well, I want to suggest to you that that is not what the Bible teaches. I believe that Ephesians 2 will show us that. I want to examine the question of grace salvation, faith, and works in several texts, mostly in Ephesians 2. We'll look at a couple of accompanying texts that will show these concepts and will show how all of those fit together for salvation, that it is by God's grace, only by His grace, that we are even able to come to salvation. But there are other components involved that we need to understand and understand how they work together. And I believe Ephesians 2 really helps us with that. The text that was read for us, verses 8 and 9, says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That word is grace also, that word gift. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so sometimes this text is used to prove that there can't be works because then there would be boasting. Well, it helps to define our terms a little bit. Let's do that quickly. What does grace mean in this context? Well, it's goodwill, loving kindness, and favor come from the part of God in this particular case. That's defined by Thayer's Greek lexicon. That which is the gift of God, that's exactly what it says in Ephesians 2 verse 9. That's a definition of grace, the gift of God there. What about the word faith? 
Well, primarily, that means a firm persuasion or a conviction that's based upon hearing, uh, especially in, in Bible saints. Think of Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I want to suggest to you that you will have faith in what you most listen to. <laughs> if all you're listening to are secular humanists, you'll have faith in secular humanism. If you're listening to evolution and examining only evidence that supports evolution, you're going to believe in evolution. If you begin to have a faith that examines and looks broadly at, at many questions, then your faith will have a chance of being a, a deeper faith. But the faith that the Bible talks about is a faith that's based on convictions that come from hearing God speak. Mark chapter 2, verse 5 speaks of a believing faith. In Mark chapter 2, there are several men carrying a paralyzed man. They can't get to Jesus. They want him to heal. They heard that he can heal people. Tried to get to Jesus. They couldn't get there. They take him up on the roof, take off the tiles of the roof, and let the man down. And Mark 2, 5 says, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the man, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> you know, imagine that scene. Jesus saw their faith. There's some kind of action involved in that. There was a response to getting to Jesus. And when they couldn't do it the simple way, they went about it as hard as they could and finally got to him. This question of works is also involved here. Literally an act or a deed, something that is done. The idea of working, of actually doing a job, is emphasized in this word. We see this used in some other texts. 1 Timothy 5.18 talks about the laborer or the worker being worthy of his wages. He's done a job and so he deserves to be paid for that. There's an, an earning, there's a reward type system in this. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uses this word for work as well. I just want to read that really quickly. Uh, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good work or your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's something being done that brings about sort of a response of glory from other people. Now, the point of that is to glorify the Father, not to glorify the worker, but the one who gave him the power for the work. And then finally, this question of being saved or salvation, to save, deliver, or protect, strong uh, Alexicon says, it's the desire of those who face death and judgment. I love the way Paul sort of spells out the blessing that we have in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 9 and 10. There's the contrast here. And this really talks about this idea of saving. God did not appoint us to wrath, the condemnation, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. That's the hope that salvation is, is to be with him and to be rescued, to be pulled away from death and condemnation and judgment. And so grace, faith, and works in this very text work together for salvation. I want to share another uh, text, though, that sort of brings that all together as well. This is not a new concept that Paul's bringing up in Ephesians chapter 2. We see grace, faith, and works together in the time of Noah from early on. In, in the very account that we have of Noah. If you'll open with me to Genesis 6. Keep your page there in Ephesians 2 because we'll be coming back. But in Genesis 6, I just want to read a couple of verses here that, that lay this out for us. In verses 5 through 7, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. It's a bad situation. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. 
There's grace in this story of Noah. We know the, the story of Noah. We know how it goes, the, the account, the register of what happened. But grace is mentioned there very specifically. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked with God. By the time we get to the New Testament, we get some more of the story. I love Hebrews 11 because it finishes out a lot of stories that began in Genesis that we don't really get the behind the scenes of, but Hebrews 11 shows it. Hebrews 11.7 is a fantastic verse. We're going to look at part of it here and part of it in another portion here. It says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It begins and ends with faith, that verse does. By faith, Noah did something or was something, and by the end, he received the righteousness which is according to faith. So we see both grace and faith at work together in Noah, and in the time of Noah and in his salvation. In fact, that's the issue. He was doing this for salvation. In the days of Noah, eight souls were saved through water, 1 Peter 3.20 says. Peter mentions it again in context of judging angels and wicked people and says God did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, one of eight people. Certainly, his grace and faith together somehow led to salvation. But I want you to notice that there were works involved as well. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah... What he did was prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Who built the ark? Well, it was Noah. God gave him the instructions. God told him to do it. God told him how long he would give him to do it. God told him all these things that were going to happen. But Noah had to actually build the ark. He did that, it says, by faith. And his faith led him then to act in doing something. Genesis 6 says this in a different way a couple of times. Verse 22 and then chapter 7 verse 5 says these words, Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. That's an active faith. Those are works though. He was working. Now, what is this issue then of grace, faith, and works? How do those work together? And why does Ephesians say not of works if there's obviously works? Let's go back to Ephesians 2 now and get a look at this fuller context. I want to read um, uh, just an excerpt I have here. It's almost the whole text. There's a little bit I left out. But I want to focus on these words, grace, faith, works, and saved in this text. So we're starting in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." I want you to notice that grace is present there several times. First, it's mentioned as God's being rich in mercy. That's a, a facet of his grace. By grace, you have been saved. You read that in verse 8. And he's showing the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. Grace is clearly present in Ephesians chapter 2. I also want to notice that as God extends his grace, he does it for salvation. Salvation is clearly present in Ephesians chapter 2. He made us alive who were dead. That's salvation, being saved from death. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Very clearly speaking it there. So his grace is extended toward us for salvation. But in this text, 
It's in spite of our works. The works that are mentioned here are trespasses and sins. There's a walk that we were involved in. We were doing something. We were conducting ourselves in the lust of our flesh. We had trespasses. All of those are works. And yet salvation came. The grace of God was extended for salvation in spite of those works. In fact, when you think about it, what work can someone who is dead do to earn their salvation? It's interesting how Jesus talks about people being dead in their sins. They're useless toward doing anything to save themselves. They're slaves of sin and can't break free to save themselves. They can't get out of that bondage. What work could possibly be done? No work of our own would ever be sufficient if we're dead. And dead in trespasses is where the vast majority of people are. It's where all of us were before we came to understand what Christ is teaching. So what work can a dead person do to earn their salvation? Let's compare that to what's said in a couple of texts in Romans now. We're still looking at this aspect of uh, grace and faith and works all together. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. Paul says, To him who works, wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So think about what we see in this text. There's works all over the place. To him who works, wages are not counted as grace. You earned that. You did the job. You deserve to be paid for it. Well, that's not grace. It's something you earned. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. There it is. You don't have to do anything. Grace is coming to justify you. You sit back and do nothing. It's not Paul's point. What he's saying is, the one who leans on his works for salvation is going to come to a dead end. He's going to understand what David understood that he needs the grace of God. Because if David were to stack up his works, in only one case, the most famous case we have of David on the negative side, his sin with Bathsheba. How can he ever say he's righteous when he not only committed adultery, fornication, lies, and murder? He had her husband murdered. He's responsible for all of that. How can he say he's innocent if he's going to show his works before God That stain is going to be there, and there's no way he can overcome that. Yet when Nathan the prophet prophet comes to David, he says, your sin has been put away. David was an adulterer. He and Bathsheba should have been stoned to death. They weren't. God put away their sin because of his grace, because of something that was coming by his grace for salvation. You see the salvation here? (laughs) He justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. He's put on the right place, even though he's not a righteous person. He has righteousness apart from works. He's forgiven of his evil works, his sins. His sins are covered, and the Lord does not impute those sins to him. And how does that work? By the one who believes on the one who justifies the ungodly. Therefore, his faith is counted for righteousness. The point is, David understood that based on works, he had no hope for salvation. And we need to understand that. And yet, very clearly, there is faith there and there is salvation. 
But let's look at a, at a text now from Romans chapter 6. A little bit further up, starting at verse 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's the works, slaves of sin, slaves of God, where sin is, is death. The wages of sin, that's the work you did and you earned your payment. The payment is the penalty of sin. And yet, there's a gift of God. The gift of God for salvation. Eternal life, everlasting life, set free from sin, righteousness, all of these that come from God. And how does that work? What's the mechanism? It's through Jesus Christ our Lord, but the whole context here is speaking of through our faith in what He did. For our response and obedience to Him for what He did. And so, as David, we're certain we don't want our due wages. Our due wages are wages of sin. There has to be another way for salvation. David experienced that. He was not put to death for his sin. He experienced the promise of a salvation that he wrote about extensively in the Psalms that is apart from works. He's the one who wrote that it's not the sacrifices, it's not holocausts and burnt offerings that, that God requires, but a contrite and repentant heart. David wrote that. He understood that very well because that's what he had to offer God. It doesn't matter how many bulls and, and goats are slain, sin is not taken away. So what does this mean? <laughs> does this mean that works have no part in our salvation? We've seen that the works that are being talked about here are the negative works, works that earned us a paycheck of sin and death. So how in the world can we then say that works do have something to do with our salvation? Well, works in and of themselves cannot earn our salvation. That is the point that's being made. But what do works have to do with salvation? There is fruitful work that needs to be done. In fact, we talked about that sort of a little bit in our talking about giving. There's fruit that's born to God's glory. In Matthew 5, 16, as we do our work before men, our good deeds, they glorify God. There's fruit of glory given there. As we contribute liberally with others, God has given us seed that'll grow the more abundantly we plant. And others will reap the benefit and they'll glorify God for that. There is fruitful work to be done. We've become no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of God. He expects us to be working. The parable of the talents, the one who did no work, was sent off as a useless servant, sent off into darkness. The others who did the work of at least bringing uh, interest back with the, with the money and then putting it to use, they were rewarded for their labors. They didn't earn their salvation, but they were useful workers for God. Let's look at what James has to say about this in this context of what we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 2. This is the text that seems so confusing once you've looked at these other texts and you realize that works are not part of what earns salvation. And then James comes along and says this. In fact, this text is one of the reasons why Martin Luther said this was a straw epistle and kicked it out. It didn't fit with his concept of grace that there was work to be done. And James very clearly says there's work to be done. James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, and also verse 24. 
Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. There's a huge component of people who would call themselves Christians that believe in faith only. They say that very phrase. James says, not faith only. But many people who would call themselves Christians say, faith only. That's a contradiction. Now, it's difficult to reconcile what's being said in Ephesians, not by works, lest anyone should boast, with this where it says, by works and not by faith only. How do we reconcile those two? Let's consider what James is saying here. Are there works involved? Absolutely. How many times has he mentioned works just in these texts? And there's more in, in the context here. There's definite work involved. And he's saying, you must do these works. These are not the useless works of dead and, and sinful nature. These are works that you must do in conjunction with your faith, because without these works, your faith is dead. How many times can I tell my wife I love her until she finally believes me? What's it going to take for her to believe? It's going to take me doing something about it. It's going to take me showing her that I love her. I can tell her I love her all day long and never do anything that proves it, and it's possible I don't love her. I might love saying that I love her, but I might not truly love her. What is it going to take for God to understand that I love him? Is it me saying I love him? That's a great thing. It's a good start. But it's going to take me showing that I love him, and that's going to take engagement by faith. Faith and works are tied together intrinsically in James. This is not a straw epistle. This is the brother of our Lord who wrote these things a doubter who became a believer and who became a worker for the Lord. He's all over the pages of Acts. This is James who's mentioned. James the Apostle was killed early on. This is the James that's mentioned most in the book of Acts. He's doing a lot at the church in Jerusalem. He's a pillar of the church there. He talks about a man being saved. He uses the word justified. That means justification from sin, sin being taken off the ledger. That's salvation. Justified by works. That's a hard thing to think about. He's not saying a man earns his justification by means of his works, but he's saying that part of the justification comes in his working. That's very clearly what he's saying. And doesn't that then contradict Ephesians 2.9? Not by works, lest anyone should boast. James is not saying a man earns his salvation. He's talking about the works that prove a faith. <laughs> A faith is where the justification comes, but the work is needed to prove that that faith is active. He's using the example of Abraham from Genesis chapter 22. Abraham said, Lord, I'll take my son and sacrifice him. Could have stopped right there. It wasn't until he made the three-day march, he put all the lumber on Isaac's back and told the people, you wait here, the lad and I are going to go worship and we'll be back, knowing he was going to take the lad and worship using the lad as his animal. He went up the mountain. This is a hard trek. He got him tied up while Isaac's asking, where's the animal? Ties him up. It's when he raises the knife and goes to plunge it in that God stopped him. All of those works Abraham did, showing that his faith was genuine. He wasn't doing them to earn some sort of salvation. I want to suggest to you that what he was doing is exactly what we do. But before we get there, I want to look at one more verse. We stopped in Ephesians 2 at verse 9. Look with me, if you will, at verse 10 now. 
Not of works, lest anyone should boast, was verse 9. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are works involved? Workmanship, works, walking, walking with him is a work in this context. These are things that God prepared beforehand. How do we know about that? Well, he revealed it. That's faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. He's revealed what we need to do. When we do what he says, we're walking by faith. We're actively uh, engaging our faith in these works that God prepared beforehand. We already talked about Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, talks about who we are as priests in the service of Christ. We're being built up a spiritual house, a holy, uh, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Those are not just sort of air prayers. That's not what these spiritual sacrifices are. The priests had a heavy load of work to do. They didn't just sort of stand around and watch everybody else do the work. They had to do the work, the heavy lifting. And we as priests in Christ's service are going to be doing a work, bringing people to the Lord, it will come in some ways through us. These spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. None of these works, the way they're laid out here, is for salvation. I can't earn my salvation by doing any of these. But you know what I can do? I can do what Abraham did. I can love the Lord and I can say, I trust you. I know that what you have said is the only way that's right. And I can respond then in faith, doing the things that the Lord has said to do. Those are the works that glorify God. Those are the works that bring about the fruit of a transformed life and bring about fruit that glorifies God as his cause is lifted up and, and brought uh, straight forward. So God is asking us to work in response to salvation, not in order to gain salvation. A loving response as Abraham, who loved God, walked before him trying to be blameless and was willing to show that he loved God more than his own son. So often we don't love God more than our own selves, much less than our own husbands or wives or children or our careers or our football games or whatever it may be. We can show our works and our faith by proving to God who we love as we do the works that he beforehand prepared for us. If you think about what's said in Titus chapter 2, God has called us to something through his grace. I love the way grace and works play out in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. The grace of God that brings salvation, those are two of our key words here, has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, those are evil works, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He expects us to be working. So how do people who are dead in trespasses come to work in response to the gospel call? Well, Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 5. It was a conundrum at the time. It was something difficult to think about. But he was talking about two groups of people, really. 
John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. It's passed from death into life. There are people who, while they're alive, are dead. Dead in your trespasses, Paul said in Ephesians 2. Jesus says, there are people standing here who, when they hear my word, will stop being dead. (laughs) They'll pass from death into life. But then he says, verse 25, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Then he says, verse 28, The hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice. There is an hour when at the resurrection, those who are physically dead will hear the voice of the Lord. But right now, those who are spiritually dead can hear and can avoid the judgment passing into life. They hear my word and believe. The dead, faithless, having faith in his word, will hear the voice of the Son of God and will have everlasting life, not coming into judgment, passing from death. All of that is salvation. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Those who are dead, hearing, believing, can change their station. <laughs> Ephesians 2 had said that very same thing. Romans 6, verses 1-4, through 4, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, a dead work, that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Those who heard and believed died to sin. He explains how that happens here. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There are two works being described here. You've got continuing in sin, evil works, or... You can walk in newness of life. You've been freed from slavery to serve liberally a new master. Still considered bond servitude, but now you're paying off a debt, as it were. You're thankfully giving yourself into his service, rather than paying off a debt you couldn't pay. Someone else paid the price. You're just working in in gratitude. You do this so that grace can be visible. The faith response is baptism into Christ, through baptism into death. You hear about that from the Lord. That's the only way you would know to do that. Nobody who hasn't heard that is going to just imagine, I'm going to go get in this water and that's going to make me better. It's a faith response. I've heard this from the Lord. Naaman, in fact, when he heard of that, said, that's ridiculous, I'm not going to do it. When he decided to obey, he got what he was looking for, the cure from his leprosy. We're looking for a much deeper cure. It's interesting that God has used this tactic before, passing through the water for salvation, as he did with Noah, who demonstrated grace and faith, and works for salvation, just as we are being asked to do. God is doing all this through grace, through grace, through faith, with our works together for salvation. So you think about those answers that are given. Raise your hand and accept Jesus into your heart. Sure, there's a little bit of work involved in raising your hand. There's a faith response somewhat there. I don't find that phrase, accept Jesus into your heart, anywhere in the Bible, though. It's not a work that God prepared beforehand. It's something that men made up afterward. We need to be careful about those. The sinner's prayer, and you'll be forgiven. There is a man who's already converted named Simon who's told, pray that the Lord may perhaps grant you repentance and forgive you these evils in your heart. But I don't see a sinner's prayer ever written down somewhere in the Bible. That's, again, not a work that God prepared beforehand. It's something men came up with afterward. Do we need to do anything at all? Absolutely. 
God's looking for those who will be zealous for good works. It is interesting that Peter, when, they, when he was asked this question at Pentecost, he didn't answer with any of those answers that are given today by a lot of people. He challenged the people at Pentecost to prove an active faith. They understood that they had just put to death the Son of God. And they said, what must we do? <laughs> not what must we feel, not what has God already done for us. What must we do? They understood there was a need for a reaction. And he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has brought salvation to all men. It has taught us to deny ungodliness. It has taught us to change our lives and to be transformed by obedience to Him as God is looking for those who are zealous for good works. I hope this introduction to the topic at least can help you see how grace and faith work together with our works of thanksgiving. It's not that we're trying to earn salvation. We can never do that. But can we ever thank Him enough? We need to be busy bringing others into His uh, salvation as well, extending His grace to them so that by faith they can respond and they can do what needs to be done for their salvation as well. Maybe it's your desire to obey God in faith toward salvation and you've never done that, you've never understood how that works. God has extended immense grace toward you. He's paid a price that you couldn't pay in the blood of His Son. If you're willing to come forward on hearing that news, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God and that He is Lord, you're willing to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. You can begin to work, to walk in newness of life and thanksgiving for what God has given you. If you've already done that and you're struggling to do what He would have you do, if you haven't been zealous enough for good works, if your works haven't been good, if that old man has reached back into your life and you want to put him to death for good, faith and grace can work together for your salvation in that as well. Whatever your need might be, we want to help you with that. That's why we're here. That's why we're all together. Why don't we sing and encourage you? Have come forward with your need.